Hello, hello, and welcome to today's Big Hearted Podcast. Today's recording comes with a trigger warning. We will be discussing child sexual abuse. This is a really sensitive topic, but one I really feel passionate, passionately about that we need to talk more about. We tend to, in our society, skirt around it because it's a difficult, uncomfortable and painful topic to talk about. But I think one of the ways that we can sort of prevent child abuse is by talking about it more freely and openly. And we certainly did that with today's guest, Christy McVie. Christy spent 10 years in the police force as a specialist child interviewer and detective senior constable. When she retired from the force, Christy believed that there was a better way to help. By taking a proactive approach rather than a reactive approach, she could help prevent child abuse and break the cycle of trauma that victims are so often subjected to. In addition to her experience in the force, Christy appeared on TV and was an online safety specialist. During this role, she presented to school students from years 3 to 12 about staying safe online. She has also presented to many parents and teachers during this time. More than just a presenter, though, Christy is a facilitator, driving the message about child abuse and bringing experts together. She's passionate about keeping kids safe and isn't afraid to keep it real. Prepare for some swearing from Christy. Well, we kept that part clean in our interview and we did go deep and we covered a a broad range of things that impact family daycare educators so much so that Christy and I are going to really keep in touch and 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 bring some things forward that can be of assistance and use to family daycare educators this topic is very emotive and if you struggle listening to this or it brings things up for you in the show notes you can find access to lifeline and bu numbers so that you can get in touch with people that can help you process anything that may come up through this interview I don't think we can shy away from this anymore and I think it's definitely something that we need to talk more about and bring more awareness to. It's deplorable that it happens, but Christy shares some really hard-hitting statistics and facts through our interview and and I really hope that you get a lot out of it. So sit back, be gentle with yourself and prepare to have your mind opened a little bit because we really, really owe it to the children we work with. So big love and I hope you get a lot out of this episode. Thanks for listening. Hello, hello and welcome to the Big Hearted Podcast. My name is Victoria Edmund and I am your host. Our aim here at the Big Hearted Podcast is to nurture a community of heart-centred educators to change the perception and delivery of early childhood education and care in Australia and ultimately around the world. We want you to be inspired by our guests and the topics we bring to you to think of new ways of being as an educator. We want you to feel a sense of belonging via this podcast so that you can engage any time of the day or night in any place that suits you. We want you to become an educator that delivers education from the heart, as we believe this is how we create great change within our world. So join us as we discover new ways to inspire each other here on the Big Hearted Podcast. Hello, 
Hello and welcome to today's podcast episode. I have the amazing Christy McVie with me all the way from WA. I randomly met Christy on TikTok and reached out and sent her a message and she so graciously agreed to come on to our podcast because as you heard in the intro, her message is so vitally important. So thank you, Christy, so much for coming on on, on our Big Hearted podcast today. Welcome. Thank you. <laughs> Very early over in WA at the moment. So you've got your copy and we're, we're good to go. So everybody heard your intro in the beginning of the podcast, but I'd love for you to share in your own words why it is that you're doing this and why you have such a passion for it. Yeah. So that intro is a little bit short and doesn't tell the whole story. But basically, when I was, my daughter was nine months old. I saw a, and I'm going to go into a little bit of how I became a police officer, if that's okay. Yes. Yeah. So when my daughter was nine months old, I was home with her. I was full-time caregiving and I had her, I think she was sleeping. Yeah, that's, she was sleeping and I was reading the local paper and there was this full page ad, two pages actually, asking for women to join the police. And I looked at the ad and I was like intrigued. I was like, oh, I could do that. Now, that's a funny thing for me to think because I'm only five foot one and I'm quite small, quite tiny. And but yeah, I just had this idea in my head. I was like, yeah, I could do that. And I was looking for a change because I'd worked in administration for 10 years before I had my daughter and I was bored. I was changing jobs all the time. And I thought that sounds like a really cool idea. So I went and told my husband and he was like, yeah, okay. And, I, and everyone I told, because I was, I'm like, right, once I commit to something, I, I let everyone know because then I can't back down. Yeah. So I told everyone around me and they were like laughing and thinking I was joking. But anyway, fast forward to, to when she was two, I got into the WA police and I, I started in January of 2010 with a two-year-old and a fly-in, fly-out husband. And yeah, so. Yeah. Yeah, it was crazy. It's it, When I think back about it, I'm like, wow, what was driving me to do that? I have no idea because yeah. all I thought was I wanted a change and this sounded like a cool job. And, you know, I did six months in the academy, but my first posting straight out of the academy was to the Pilbara, Karatha in the Pilbara, which is 1,600 kilometres from Perth. And I moved up there with my family. And so it was really interesting. Got a big eye opening when I left the, the, the safety of the academy and went out into the big wide world. And straight away, I realized that there is so much about the world I didn't know. I was very naive. Very, I wouldn't say I was naive because I, I grew up in a, in a, like a mixed family, separated family, you know, had my parents were both alcoholics and had, and there was some drug addiction and stuff like that. So I wasn't naive to the world and those things, but I was naive to the world of child sexual abuse. It wasn't something that had touched my life. Mm -hmm. But anyway, once I was in Karatha, I actually put my hand up for some extra training, which was to become a specialist child interviewer. And it was specialist training. Yeah. So what a specialist child interviewer does is they, taught how to interview children for the specific purpose of getting evidence for court. So the reason for that is, is because uh, children innately want to please adults Mm -hmm. and will sometimes try to answer questions. If they're answered, if they're asked in a certain way, children might answer a question to please the adult. So 
the main reason for the way the training works is to get in ask questions in a way that the child has to answer it in their own words without being led. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is so that a child's evidence is as pure and as as pure as possible. Yeah. So yeah, so I went away to this training and came back and I started interviewing kids as a junior constable. And yeah, yeah, I was only one year in the job by that stage, but I'd already been around and and dealt with young people who had been abused because as a first responder, as a, as a general duties police officer, you go out to jobs when they're called, you know, a parent would call and say, my child's just disclosed to me or just told me that they've been, you know, been at someone's house and someone's done something. So you turn up and you take the initial report before it's handed off to detectives. So, yeah, so I learned very quickly about the, you know, that the world that most families, parents don't want to talk about. Most people don't want to talk about, about child sexual abuse. And I was doing that from the time my daughter was three. But interestingly, when my when I did that training, I, I had my blinkers taken off really quickly about how child sex offenders and abusers work and how they groom children. Mm. And I came back from that training and I had a three-year-old at that stage and I was like, right, no one's going near my kid. No one's doing this. No one's doing that. I probably went the, the other way. But knowing what I knew, I was very, became very cautious very quickly and ended up staying in Port Hedley, staying in Caratha for four, up to four years and became a detective from there and then devoted my time to becoming a child abuse detective and learning and, and stayed interviewing and stuff like that because I really was passionate about keeping kids safe. Unfortunately, though, in my position, I wasn't actually able to keep kids safe. I was always coming in after the fact. You know, I was after the abuse had happened, after things had happened, and that's the unfortunate position I was in whilst there. But during all of this, and especially towards the end of my career, I was with the police for 10 years and I, I retired as a detective senior constable. I realised that, yeah, police weren't doing the job of keeping kids safe. They were just coming in and cleaning it up afterwards. You know, they were the ambulance kind of thing at the end. And I realised that if parents knew what I knew after 10 years of speaking to children, speaking to families, you know, part of my job was to interview the children and get their evidence. And in some cases, I would then investigate it, interview the offender and charge the offender. And then I also had some, in some positions, I was also managing child sex offenders once they'd gotten out of jail. So I had this so much knowledge and I just realised that people need to know what I know. Parents need to know what I know. And if they knew what I knew, then they would might be doing things a little bit differently with their kids. Yeah. It's so horrific. <laughs> like, oh, I, I, and, and it's so prevalent within our society, but nobody wants to talk about it. Like we just don't want to address it. And we're all tiptoeing around this particular topic because it's so distressing. For many of us, it never crosses our paths. Like it's it's not crossed my path. And I'm completely naive to the way things work until it did cross my path in, in terms of a, a friend and an incident that happened that she was able to share with me, which got me into realising particularly in family daycare, we're very vulnerable. We're very exposed. Like 
And there's things that are in place, but I don't think there's enough in place. And this is where like, I found you on TikTok and messaged you because what you were saying was just like, oh man, yeah, it's, it's exactly, it's exactly that. We address things with a Band-Aid and a fix after it happens and we put all this money and resources into the things after they happen. Yeah. Really, we need to put it at the beginning and we need to make people aware of the signs to look out for. So what are some of the things that we should be looking out for or or like the top two or three things? Well, there's probably a million things you want parents mm. to know, but what's the standout thing that you want parents and educators to be aware of? You're 100% right. Primary prevention is going to save trauma in kids' lives, parents' lives. You know, I did a stint in the child abuse court and I was there investigating institutionalised historical child sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. And the trauma that went with those people going through what they had gone through with no to little assistance, Mm -hmm. that was a big eye-opener for me because if you, in the perfect world, when a child or when a child is traumatized by child sexual abuse, they get support, help, they get counseling and therapy, their parents are, you know, not affected by other incidences beforehand, they're, you know, they're whole healthy, happy family members, you know, they get the help, they get the the support and they, and they move on, they can move on. But in most cases, that's not the case. Parents have got their own trauma. The child isn't supported. They're not able to get into counselling therapy. So the few things that I think needs to happen is we need to be, we need to have the mindset that it's not if it's going to happen, it's when it's going to happen. Because there is always, you know, we're not just dealing with the creepy, you know, the creepy man in the white van. We're dealing with people in people, you know, most children are abused in their own home or in a home they know. Mm. 90%, and in my opinion, it's actually around 95%, 90% of all children are abused um, by someone they know. And 30 to 60% of that is by another child. So, yeah, the, the reason why it's such a big difference, 30 to 60, is because that children don't often come forward until later in life and they can't, narrow it down but they're saying you know 30 to 60 percent of all child sexual abuse is actually by another child and you know and then on top of that we've got one in three girls and one in seven boys will be sexually abused by the time they reach 18 so they're the stats they're the stats today and some of those stats are like 10 years old but they're still relevant right now and you know so if we're looking at in a family daycare situation and you've got you know maybe eight I don't know what the numbers are for those those situations, but five to eight children, at least one of those children, maybe two, four. Yeah. At least one of those children are potentially abused or will be being abused or could be abused. So we've got to remember that we've got to remember that primary prevention is the best offense. We're I, I don't want to, I don't, I wish people would stop thinking about the defense side where after the fact, which includes if I was to give a couple of things, I would say, you know, ensuring that that you're te- teaching protective behaviours education, 
you know, as part of your curriculum. Protective behaviours, in my opinion, when, you know, abusers and, you know, and unfortunately I won't talk, I don't like talking about other children as abusers. They're not, they're just children, right? And they need that education as well. But children who know their own bodily rights, that they know that they are, you know, no one's allowed to touch their private parts. They're not allowed to touch other people's private parts, that they know that they can go to a safe person, a safe adult when something happens or if they feel unsafe. They know what it feels like to feel unsafe in their body, you know, butterflies in their tummy, you know, sweaty hands, clammy hands, feeling uncomfortable. That when they know that they, that feeling and they can verbalize it to someone, I'm not feeling very good, I'm not feeling safe. Yeah. You know, when they can realize that what a safe and unsafe secret are, these are all protective behaviors. And when children know that, and I was teaching these to my daughter from three years old, when children know that they are confident and they know that they can go to someone. And when you know those two things, then you're going to reduce the amount of abuse. I don't know how many fold, but, you know, I'm for, the children I saw being abused and the children I interviewed were the ones who were vulnerable. They didn't have supervision. They didn't have, they weren't confident. They were too young to know or you're too young to speak up. And, you know, and also, you know, unfortunately, a lot of those kids are kids with intellectual and, and physical disability. Yeah. They're, you know, so we need to remember that children are vulnerable yeah. and we need, as adults, it's our job to protect them. It's not their job to stop abuse. It's our job to stop the abuse. Yeah. Yeah. And and to be aware of it and aware of the possibility. You touched on other children being the abuser. I know in my experience when my son was in class three, there was a, a couple of girls that had a sleepover and something happened and I was made aware of it and Straight away, I went and spoke to the teacher. This happened outside of school, but I went and spoke to the teacher and the teacher's response to me was, that's kind of normal childhood behaviour and children explore things like that and it's pretty normal. And I took that as gospel thinking this person knew what they were talking about. However, after I'm an avid podcast listener and true crime listener, and it's astounding the amount of men that are coming out now and sharing the abuse that they've endured and a lot of their criminal activity and direction and choice in life come stems from that abuse because the people who are supposed to protect them, yes, often the ones that are abusing them, so they have no trust in authority and then they choose they have all these terrible life choices and then they've got so much to unpack and undo. So since listening to all of that sort of stuff and having a different perspective and understanding, I'm like, oh, my goodness, no. And this is where family daycare educators sit really differently because quite often they're working with their own children who grow up to be teenagers and whatnot. And they often will travel through, you know, three or four years with the children in family daycare. So they become like family. And there is a very real possibility that educators will let their guard down and have this trust with their own children. And like, I mean, this feels awful to say, and it's, I want to say it rarely happens, but I know there have been cases within family daycare where a teenager has crossed a line. And it's really difficult because they've got these hormones. They don't think their brains don't work. Like my son's 21, he still doesn't work. But 
<laughs> you know, you know, there's, there's just, and but, but family daycare educators need to be really aware they cannot ever let that guard down, and they're in this position to be a safe person because there's been so much time away from their primary caregivers where these things bubble up. This stuff bubbles up at some point, and I bet every child that's been abused has disclosed at some point, but people haven't been listening. Yes, of it. So, I was about to say whilst you're whilst you're saying all that, it came to mind. So in January or well, early this year, March, January, March, they the Australian Bureau of Statistics released a stat that said that only one in three Australians, adults, Australian adults, will believe a person when they disclose sexual abuse to them. So, and I actually teach this when I go and talk at schools is perseverance. And so it's recommended that we, and when we're teaching kids about safe people, safe adults, should I say, that they should be someone that will list that they feel safe with and trust, but someone who will do something about it when they tell them. Because quite often when a child goes to the first person, that person doesn't know what to do with it, will minimize it, justify it like that teacher did. Oh, that's normal. And like push them away or let them go. And so we, I actually, we actually teach perseverance in protective behaviors now so that if that person doesn't listen, they go to the next one Mm -hmm. and the next one until someone does something, because that is what children are having to do. They're having to talk to more than one person before they actually get the result, which, you know, every child, every person I ever dealt with who, you know, had come forward and, and disclosed their abuse, they didn't want the person who abused them to be in trouble. They wanted it to stop. Yeah. And whilst we're, and so the reason why they come forward is because they really just want that person to stop doing what they're doing. And it's not, there's no, vendi- you know, there's no vendetta, there's no, you know, spite, there's nothing in that child's head other than, please, I know this is wrong and I don't want them to do it anymore. I does, it doesn't make me feel good. I don't mm-hmm. like what they're doing. That's all it comes down to. It's, it's not until you become an adult and you're really angry at the world that you start that spiteful mindset or that anger. And so, yeah, that was one of the things that came forward. And the other thing, you know, was that child or peer-based abuse. Mm. You know, that, you know, that that incident that you're talking about, we would consider that the technology, a terminology is harmful sexualized behaviors. So harmful sexualized behaviors are, you know, sexual behavior towards another person without their consent or even with consent, if it was, you know, not age appropriate, I'm trying to think of the terminology they like to use in science, but, you know, so for instance, if you're dealing with a couple of 14-year-olds um, and they're both giving consent and they're both, you know, exploring and learning each other, that's not harmful sexualized behaviours. But if you have a 14-year-old and a 9-year-old and, and the 14-year-old is engaging in harm, like sexualized behaviours towards the 9-year-old, well, that would become would be a harmful problem because you've got a, a power imbalance with the age. You've yeah. got them doing something towards the, the other child that most likely that, well, first of all, that child can't consent to. And second of all, you know, is probably something they're not actually wanting to do. But they're going along with that because that's what they're, you know, that's what that power imbalance does. And interestingly, you know, there's a lot of science and a lot of research going around harmful, harmful sexualized behaviors at the moment. 
And most likely, so the age group that is most likely to engage, so do harmful sexualized behaviors is between 10 and 14 years old. So they're most likely to engage in harmful sexualized behaviors. A couple of reasons they're going through puberty. There might be some issues and there's a link between harmful sexualized behaviors and unmet needs in children. And unmet needs in children are, you know, they don't have a supportive family. They might be domestic violence. They might not have love and support at home. They might. So there's, there is a link between unmet needs and harmful sexualized behaviors. The age group of children that are most likely to have harmful sexualized behaviors done to them is five to nine years old. Wow. So if you've got teenagers in a house with young kids and look, I do not, do not say I'm, you know, with all I know, I do not blame or shame or want to put the spotlight on any teenager. I'm not saying teenagers are inherently like that, but if you've got a child that, you know, if you, if you've got teenagers, there is an inherent risk. Yeah. And if you've got even young kids, if they're being abused or being, you know, a lot of the time kids will show sexualized behaviors. So sexualized, normal type sexualized behaviors are, you know, we know that as children develop, they find their genitals, they'll be interested in their genitals. That's normal. Um, You know, even to the point of showing each other their genitals, that sometimes that is normal at certain age groups, right? What what us as editors and, and teachers to children is we would say, hey, that's not appropriate at that time. If they continue, you would say, well, if they continue to do it without, you know, don't heed the warning or don't heed the advice and they continue to do it, well, you'd be wondering why they're still doing it. Is there something going on there? Mm-hmm. The other kinds of harmful sexualized behaviors that I've seen is, you know, a child touching another child's genitals, you know, oh, show, you know. And when they've t- when they're spoken to, and that you say, well, hey, that's not appropriate. We don't touch other people's private parts, or gen- you know, other pro- people's private parts. And they continue to do it. Well, hey, what's going on there? Yeah. And you know, the other kinds of things is, you know, young children I've seen in in when I was interviewing kids is, you know, they're moaning or making sex sounds. They're simulating sex. Big red flags in a, if a child, especially a young child, anywhere but under 10 is showing that, those signs. Yeah. The other thing is, is that the average age of a child seeing porn for the first time in Australia is eight years old now. It, yeah, and that's come down in the last, well, couple of years, but it used to be 10 and now it's eight. So with the increase of children accidentally seeing porn, and accidentally seeing porn because they're not most children aren't looking for pornography they just happen to stumble across it on their devices or they have a friend that shares yes their friends that share or their friends that have been shown it by someone who's probably grooming them or something happening like that is to yeah so the increase increase in that is seeing an increase in sexualized behaviors and increase in harmful sexualized behaviors because if children are seeing that and they're seeing that and, you know, trying it on, and on each other. Yes. So I don't know if I answered any questions, but I'm. <laughs> no, but there's so much to unpack in all of this, Christy. Like there really is. And it's terrifying. It is, but it's, there's all, it's all preventable. It's all preventable well, to a point. Uh, I, I'm, uh, absolutely. And and like something that you, you touched on about, you know, when children simulate things and there's a couple of things I want to mention there. 
One is when I worked in a preschool in a kindy room with 24 children, there was for, for a couple of years, it was quite, I wouldn't say frequent, but it was not unusual to see children. And in my experience, it was always girls who would be getting hot and sweaty at rest time because they, and I always thought it was like, oh, you know, you just discover that and you know it feels nice and and there's a bit of that that happens. Is that classified as normal or is that a red flag? I would be investigating purely like why, you know, like even three-year-olds, you know, young kids, if they've got the intelligence, like the emotional intelligence or the the awareness, they can verbalize what's going on for them. I would be like, hey, you know, if it, and it is, I guess there is a point of it that is normal. You know, my daughter will kill me for ta- telling this story. But, you know, when I was teaching her protective behaviors and I, and another part of the protective behaviors education is to ensure that they know the anatomical and correct names for their body, right? Yes. Because that's so important because abusers and, and groomers and pet predators will use their their lack of knowledge against them and yeah so when I was teaching her the anatomical correct names I we had this massive mirror and I got this I think she was four by this stage and I got this idea in my head to like she was asking about why where she peed from yeah and and I was like well you know there's a mirror you can have a look yeah and she realized she had more than one hole (laughs) right some men don't even know that (laughs) and she was like and when her dad got home that evening she he, she was like dad come and have a look at my hole uh, and I was like mortified I was like no we won't be oh no, that's not happening we don't show that to anyone but you know like that beautiful that beautiful innocence, innocence yeah. is actually it's actually and you know my daughter's been through this you know, as much as I've gone through this, my daughter went through everything. I tested everything I knew on her and she has come out the other side at 14, you know, confident, knows consent inside out, knows her bodily rights, doesn't put up with anyone's crap, you know, doesn't tolerate, you know, being treated badly, you know. And I mean, it's a, it's a lifelong lesson. These lessons are lifelong. They don't actually stop just because you've taught them once. You need to teach them over and over and over again. Yeah, you yeah. know, it and needs to be embedded. Yeah, and also, you know, that consent piece, like, you know, we don't talk about consent. And I recently had a 71-year-old woman email me because, I, you know, she sent me a review of my book and a 71-year-old grandmother of, like, six kids, and she said to me in her email, it was so long, and she just said, I can't believe how stupid I feel. I've never, ever thought about consent and that I didn't have to consent to things. Oh. Because, and she said, you literally blew my mind away because I have, I can count on my two hands where I haven't consented. And, oh. and she said, you know, why I can't believe I didn't know this. I can't believe I didn't consider this. And to be fair to her, I didn't consider this. I was never taught this. I was never spoken to about consent. And yet when I was dealing with teenagers, especially, you know, in a situation where, you know, they there was a mandatory report and they came forward and, and, you know, usually it was consensual. Usually, you know, there was consensual stuff going on. You know, even to the point where there was one young girl, she was 12, 
in sorry she was she 12 or 13 maybe 13 she had been talking to a boy and they had been having this sexy chat and had agreed to have sex together in the school toilets at school the next day right in in theory that was fine with her but when it came down to it and she had to actually go through with it she didn't want to do it mm-hmm. and at the end of the day it went they went ahead with it and she told her friend that she didn't want to do it. So then the friend thought she had been raped. So then told a teacher, teacher mandatory reported it. And when we came down to it and when we sat down with the young girl, I just said to her, do you know that you don't have, if you, even if you've consented before previous, like even if you consented five minutes ago, you can change your mind and that you don't have to go through with something. And she was like, no, I didn't know that. You know, and we're dealing with young people who are engaging in sexualized behaviors really young yep. because they're because of the sexualization of our social media, because this is what, yeah, it's just, I think the consent piece is missing as well. Protective yeah. behaviors, consent education, they, they go hand in hand together. And then maybe, you know, if I was a, a, a home daycare, I'd be talking about those two things and continuing that education in place you know because consent can be anything I don't consent to tickle you I don't want you to tickle me you know I don't consent and and respecting that no yeah. the thing is is that we don't I, I wrote it I wrote this in my book we don't know that we can say no until someone valid validates that yes you know? yeah it needs to be validated and it needs to be practiced a lot more than once for, for kids and parents and adults to actually understand that. I mean, how many of yeah. us probably have our boundaries pushed every day and people keep pushing, right? So if we're t- teaching our young people those two things, then we're going to have a, a generation of really amazing, you know, emotionally aware ki- people yeah. who are going to respect people's boundaries and not take, you know, and take no as a no. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's probably yeah. more I could tell you, but <laughs> there's so much I could tell you I know we could we could talk about this until the cows come home. I I think it's really interesting. I just want to quickly go back and then we'll circle back to here. You talked about when children simulate things and whatnot, and I come from a, a Steiner background, so yeah. I've I've done quite a bit of research into that. And one of the things that stands out and always stood out for me is in the teachings that he says what comes in has to come out. And we did a storytelling workshop and and it it even goes down to the images that children see in books. You know, if there's these big, scary monster troll things, you know, children will take that in and they they can't differentiate between what's made up and what's real. There is this, they're, they're so, what I would say, open to the world And they don't have these filters. And this is where it's important for educators to be aware that when children make disclosures and they do share things, there is sometimes that line between a story and something that they've put together but what's real life. But that's not up to us to differentiate and to discern. And it's I think that's a really important point that we need to, you know, we are mandatory reporters anything that comes up that's you know like it's not up to us to make that decision that goes to someone like you who would then look at the process and go oh yeah yeah I'm sure there are 
you know, themes and and things, if that's the right word, that you would just pick up straight away that are like, oh, oh, oh no, 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 no. Or, yep. oh, that's a little bit. Mm. And you guys are trained in that, not us. And I that's think that's right. where a lot of people probably go, oh, I don't know if I should report. That sounded like a bit of a, a story. But when when you understand that everything a child takes in has to come out in some capacity, if they're being exposed to pornography and all that sort of stuff too, that's going to come out in some behaviour because it's what I would say goes against the sole knowledge of the child. So yep. on, an, on, a, on, a, on a level, they completely know that it's wrong and it doesn't feel right. And in order to process it, they have to like act it out almost, so to speak. And I could be way off with that, but that's what I believe to be true. And so, yeah, those kinds of behaviours, just to finish off what we were talking about before, it's important for educators to understand that. And that's why we have a no screen policy in our service unless you're looking up like you found this funky caterpillar outside and you want to have a look at it, jump on YouTube and have a look at it. But other than that, there's a no-go for screens anywhere in our service purely because so much of what's out there, even when it's designed for children, is really not. I remember watching Drop Dead Fred as a kid going, this is so great, put it on for my kids. And I was like, we're not watching this. Like, oh, my God, what were my parents thinking? (laughs) I think we even watched it at the vacation care as Mm. kids, like, it's so not child appropriate. There's so much innuendo and everyone like it goes over their heads. It absolutely does not. And that filters into their being at some point. So it's really, a, you know, we need to be very conscious of that and very aware of it. And then I forgot what we were going to circle back to. But I was I was just going to say about that mandatory reporting piece, you know, again, like you said, it is not a caregiver's job to discern whether something a child has said is correct or not, or it has happened or not. I interviewed many children who had made a disclosure to someone and it was mandatory reported or even a parent brought them in and, you know, and it turned out it was just a story or it was something that was misinterpreted. But you know what? That's I loved those cases because it meant that that child actually had been heard, was safe, and that that child had had someone who cared about them. The cases where... And, you know, unfortunately, I used to, you know, I used to have kids all the time come to me and they wouldn't disclose anything. But deep down in my knowing, I knew that something was going on. Somewhere along the line that they had disclosed to someone something and then they came to the to to be interviewed. And and I don't know what it's like in the rest of the country, but in Western Australia, when when a child's interviewed, you know, I wasn't a police officer. Mm. I was an interviewer. And I would look like a normal everyday person in plain clothes. I We went to a non-threatening environment. It was, you know, in a room with, you know, and they, they are recorded, so there's a camera there, and, and you explain that all to the child and you tell them all about that. And I had, you know, children come to me and I knew they'd been abused, but they wouldn't disclose. And then I, I would always remind them that they could come back anytime and come and talk to me anytime because that process is quite scary. You know, sharing that information is quite scary. You know, some kids are just like bleh and want to get it off their chest and want to relieve themselves of that stress and that pressure and that anxiety and everything. Some kids are so, you know, depending on what's happened to them, 
they're not ready to let it go. And during the Royal Commission into Institutionalised Child Sexual Abuse, they worked out that the average length of time between abuse and disclosure is 24 years. So So we've got a lot of people out there with complex trauma from abuse walking around because the average length of time from abuse to disclosure is 24 years. Oh, and, that is horrendous. Yeah. And so, it, you know, as educate as caregivers, we have a real massive responsibility to be that safe place, that safe people. And I take it as an honour. Like it is an honour and a privilege to be in those children's lives. It was an honour and a privilege to have children feel safe to talk to me and share with me what had they had been through in complex detail it was a pleasure it was an honor and I still hold my hand on my heart and feel so grateful to those children and to those families because you know their worst days they were willing to share it with me and I think that's what people don't realize we are so quick to judge to dis to justify it away or you know just push it away like oh it doesn't happen it didn't happen but if you're in a position of being that safe person to that child, it is your duty to keep them, you know, to listen to them and to keep them safe. Mm. And as if, you know, and if a child does come to you and discloses, you know, you don't have to get the full details. You don't have to ask 50 questions. It, the bare bones, bare bones basic stuff is enough for a mandatory report, you know. So what, what, what talking about that, I really would like to delve deeper into that. What would the questions be like? What are safe sort of questions to ask? Because we cover, we, we sort of, we get told don't ask leading questions, but mm. we don't get told what we can say. I think that's a massive yeah. gap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You could, I'm just trying to think, and it's been, bear with me, it's been a few years. I've, I'm, I'm out of the job like nearly three years now. Yeah. Um, so my brain's just trying to go, what was the questions I asked? You know, so you want to ask open-ended questions. Yeah. So that, that could be, tell me tell me about, so if they've disclosed, little Johnny discloses that someone's hurt his bottom, for instance, you know. Yeah. You could say, oh, obviously in a, you know, quiet private place because you don't, even if they were playing something while you're doing it, you could, and, and, Big, big, make sure you take notes. Make sure even you don't have to write them there and then in that moment, but straight after because yeah. those notes will used will be used as evidence. Yeah. But, you know, they say you could ask, oh, tell me about what, what, tell me about what you mean. Tell me about what, how your bottom got hurt. Tell me about, you know, use that tell me. Tell, yeah. tell me what happened when your bottom got hurt or tell me, tell me who hurt your bottom. Yeah. You know, and then when they open up and say, oh, well, you know, whoever has touched, you know, I had an incident, I had an incident, it's not even funny, but it just reminded me of this story where a little four-year-old girl said her daddy had hurt her bottom. And in the interview, she disclosed that he had put his penis in her bottom and, but she was able to, yeah, it's hard to hear, but it's truth. She had disclosed that he had a special towel and white stuff came out at the end of his penis and 
he was she was able to disclose all of that at four and not and she wasn't a quiet four-year-old she was bouncing all over the room she was a very boisterous 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 four-year-old like she was able to disclose something that no child should be able to disclose yeah and yeah so you know the questions would be open-ended so tell me about what happened when your bottom got hurt tell me about what happened when your bottom got hurt tell me about who hurt your bottom the main thing would be is you don't want to ask much more than that the fact that he they disclose in this case the fact that they disclose someone's hurt their bottom and they're able to tell you who did it and how it happened so you know they've put something in their bottom then that's enough okay we don't need to know what when it happened you know yeah. where it happened or how you know who was around we don't need to know any of that as a daycare worker as a you know a at home daycare you just need to know that your job as a mandatory reporter is just to go this happened to this child and this is who did it or not even that this happened to this child they've disclosed this that's it and and would you tell the child that you're going to tell someone else because quite often depending on the age depending well yes I would I would because that's for the integrity of you and integrity of the 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 space you know the safe space that you've got and you know you could say something along the lines of it's I'm really glad you told me and you felt safe to tell me um just so you know I have to now go and tell um some people who are going to do something about that or you could say I'm going to go and tell um someone who's going you know people are going not people just trying right, to I'm going to tell the right people who are going yeah. to make sure that that doesn't happen again. Yeah, exactly like that. Yeah, that something along those lines, but but always, you know, some of the biggest complaints I had from those those people who were abused as children and as historical was that the person they told first of all didn't listen, diminished it, made them feel like but you know, thank you so much for telling me that. You know, your heart might be breaking inside and you might be feeling sick to the stomach, but thank you so much for trusting me with that. I really appreciate it. I'm glad that you feel I'm a safe person you can talk to. You know, just so you know, I need to go and tell this to someone else now because it's really important that we make sure this doesn't happen again. Yeah, yeah. Um, And 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 not making promises you can't keep either, you know, like. Yeah, you can't because you know, especially depending on the age, you know, if they, especially if they get older and there's been some manipulation and grooming going on, and that person who's abusing them has said you can't tell anyone. Like you said, everything that goes in has to come out. You know, if there's someone who's done that to that child, they'll be petrified. Yeah, they'll be petrified about what's going to happen to them. Yeah, yeah, and especially if it's in their own home. Yeah, because so, it's not safe there, and then they've made it even less safe by dobbing and telling on them yeah it's such a can and just and just you know validating them validating that what they did was the right thing validating that you know it it's important that we make sure that no one does this again yeah you know it's not what what happened to you isn't okay just small little little things that make such a big difference Huge. I mean, yeah, and it is, it's that validation, but it's also like children, and this again comes back to my Steiner background, it might be a bit woo-woo for some people, but I truly think that children choose their educators on some level. Mm. There's a soul agreement contact there between, contract there between everybody that's involved in that child's life, right? And 
if that child does give you the privilege of a disclosure, knowing that you're going to take that further but telling them that, yep, like thank you for sharing because I need to know that so that I can help you now. Yeah. Um, one of the one of the things that and they'll feel that on a soul level, even though they may feel sick from having shared that because they know something bad's going to happen now. On a soul level, you are gifted an opportunity to change something for that child's life. One thing that I often heard when I've listened to the True Crime podcast and whatnot and people are sharing their experiences is that they have made a disclosure. That person has then gone and told somebody, but it's been not dealt with after that. So is that something that you've experienced? Is that maybe we've moved a little bit beyond that? But I know particularly in institutionalised it's almost like a racket, you know, the higher up it goes, the worse the abuse gets in terms of what's been uncovered and, and they, people at the top sometimes can often be the worst offenders. So making a disclosure to someone in middle management, they're, they're up of their bosses are already doing it. And, and so, you know, or maybe that person isn't aware, but these people are actually doing it and that disclosure mm. doesn't go further what can we do to ensure that our mandatory reporting is actually going to do what it should be doing? Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, I don't. When it, I know in Western Australia, when you do a mandatory report, it goes to mandatory reporting and then it's sent to police and the Department of Communities or Department of Child Protection, whatever it's called. So it's not like it can get lost, if that makes sense. Yeah. I'm hoping that's the same in every state. So I would question, if I was reporting a mandatory report, I would question where it's going. Yeah. And and in in actual fact, you should get a copy of that mandatory report because you go onto the mandatory reporting website and you you fill it in, I'm pretty sure. So, you know, if you're handing it up to someone, I would question, hey, can you just make sure you give me a copy for my records? Yeah, okay. Because I know some services or some places have policies where they need to work in conjunction with their service provider. Yeah. I think I'll be looking at our policy and just in mind of this conversation and just double checking that the educator needs to make we we make the educator make the mandatory report. I guide them through it and and we talk about it. And because it's traumatic, it's it's mm. awful when somebody, ha- it's a trauma for that person to be disclosed to because yeah. they don't see the children like that and then to know something like it just hurts. It's just yeah. yuck. Awful. There's vicarious so, trauma. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm living in it right now yeah. <laughs> with the incident at my husband's work. So, and it's been astounding the way my brain has coped with that or rather not coped with it because I'm a mess and it didn't even happen to me, right? So this can be experienced by educators when something like this happens within on their watch too. So our process is that the educator will always talk to us and then I request them to make the mandatory report because it's better to come from them it's yeah. rather than secondhand through me because even a change in words can change a tone. So I think I would encourage services and educators alike 
that are listening to this to take that on board and to take ownership of that and and work with your service because you'll there'll be notes that you have to make and files that you have to report and all that sort of thing but I personally think it's really important for the person who's been disclosed to to follow that up themselves and to be the champion in that and ensuring that it goes where it needs to go. I mean, I would imagine that home daycare providers are so attached, connected. These children become part of their family, right? Absolutely. So there is a strong connection there. I would imagine that most of them would want to know that it was being, you know, treated properly, the child was being looked after, all of that stuff. I would highly recommend that whoever is disclosed to goes and gets some like either speaks to a a social, like a counsellor, therapist, and get some help themselves. I recommend that to anyone who has a person in their life going through a traumatic situation because, like you said, you don't have to go through something to feel trauma. Vicariously, you can go through that trauma with them. And I know that my family have felt like that when I was going through, you know, I did end up leaving the job after 10 years because I got PTSD from the years of work that I did and not and you know my only regret with that is is that I could have probably dealt with it better when I was in the job and maybe still in the job but at the same time I'm like I wouldn't be doing this I wouldn't be talking about prevention so I'm not actually that sad about it I'm just like and again PTSD and vicarious trauma they're they're gnarly little beasts they don't all act the same they don't all treat you know you get Yeah, it just can be such a, it's such a burden that you don't really, it's like this invisible burden that just kind of pops up out of nowhere. Yeah. And and even even like once a disclosure is made, it could be weeks before anything comes out and you have to work with that child on a weekly basis, deal with the parents and perhaps the child that it was one of the parents and you have to face them like hopefully in most situations if it's a child being abused in their home and like I said you know 90% of children are abused by someone they know and most of that is done in their own home so you know if it is a child that's being abused at home that the number one priority is their safety mm-hmm. so you know in my in my experience if a child was being abused in the home it was considered be one and then you know police and the Department of Communities or Department of Child Protection would work together to come up with a safety plan so that child was taken out of that environment for a short, for, until the investigation. So the investigation would be rushed through because okay. we needed to make sure that that child wasn't in a, in, you know, we needed to first of all substantiate the claim or the, the disclosure. So we needed to prove that the disclosure had happened and we needed to make sure that that child was safe, that this child's safety was number one. You know, if it's someone known to the child but not in the home, then that that reduces the the risk and the priority. And then, you know, you would, as a detective, as an investigator, we would talk to the family and say, like, we need to keep this child away from this person. So in the meantime, it would slow down the process. It would slow down how quickly we reacted. So if, you know, that's the reason why mandatory reports are so important is because the person who has received that report needs to ensure that top priority is child safety. 
But in in saying that, it's not the caregiver's job to make sure that it's the it's police's job. It's yes. you know, Department of Communities or whoever. It's their job to make that kid safe. It's not your job. And unfortunately, if you're anything like me, you feel very in you want to keep that kid safe. Like I just wanted to hug all of those kids and keep yeah. them with me. Yeah. But unfortunately, you have to just remember that you're you've done your part by yeah. speaking up for that child and giving that giving it to the people who need to do their job. Yeah, yeah. And and maintaining your own mental health, like we touched on PTSD and vicarious trauma and, and that sort of thing. And I've I've been very vocal in sharing what has occurred to us. This podcast isn't going to come out for a little while, but when the incident happened, we were mid-launch of our course and I just could not hold that space. So for an educator who's had a disclosure to them, they should be aware that they may very well not feel okay for a little while, depending on what the disclosure is and and the after effects of that too. They they should prepare to feel a little bit discombobulated. That's the only way I could describe how I felt because you kind of feel like everything's kind of just bubbling around. But to have that... And some services will have access to a employee assistance program, which where there are counsellors. Some services won't be able to afford that, but you can always go and get a mental health plan from your GP. You do get a number of free services, psychological assessments or or visits that you can have for free. And the, the, the study that they've done on prevention of PTSD and the process of trauma, the first 30 days are vitally important. And I can speak this because (laughs) I'm right in it. And it's, it's so important because that can be the make or break and you don't want this to affect the rest of your life. It's going to impact the rest of your life but you don't want it to affect the rest of your life. So I think we could talk about this all day. What we haven't touched on is your book and how people can get in touch with you and follow you. So can you tell us about your book, where we can get it? And yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So I, after leaving the police, as I said, before I was leaving, I just had this, this like, I don't know, I was on a mission I was even going through the PTSD and, you know, and the associated mental illness with it. I was just like, I need, parents need to know what I need to know, what I know. They need to know what I know. So I don't know. I I sat down writing a few things and then over the course of two years, it turned into a book and it's called Operation Kids Safe, a detective's guide to child abuse prevention. And the book is everything I know, everything I've experienced and everything I you know, I, I mentioned that I've got a 14-year-old daughter and she is a big part of this. She's the reason why I think when I became a when I became a mother, it unlocked a next level of my psyche where I was like, I, you know, I became this huge protector of children. It unlocked something. And so she's a big part of it. So she's she's in there. I talk about instant, you know, little things that have happened with her and you know, with her permission. <laughs> and yeah. yeah, so the book's broken up into four parts. The first part is about child abuse, child sexual abuse. So by someone known to the child in person. And it talks about protective behaviors in detail and how to talk to kids about this stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, then the second part is about peer-based abuse, what it is, 
how what we need to be educating our children on and all through the book it's it's age appropriate so I give idea ideas hints advice guidance on when and how to talk to them and where you know at what age and then the third part is about online usage and device usage and how to keep your kids safe online in a general base and the fourth part is which is really interesting, I think, is what to do if it talks about what what happens in a police investigation, what police evidence they're looking for, and what to do if your child is a victim of child sexual abuse, online abuse, online grooming, cyberbullying, catfishing, sexual uh, sextortion, which is another big topic at the moment so yeah so it's broken up into four parts so you can get the book so you can get a signed copy from me from my website which is www.cape-au.com so that you can get a signed copy or you can get it on kindle and amazon so yeah and we'll put the links in the show notes so that if you're walking around the lake and you're listening to this and you're like, God, I can't write that down. Come back and have a look in the show notes. We'll put all the information there. We'll put all of Christy's social media there. Like Come I said, follow I me on TikTok. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I followed, I found her on TikTok. Just this random, beautiful, blue-eyed lady popped up. <laughs> talking all these things and I was like whoa that's a serious message and I need to get in touch with her so yeah um, my my handle on TikTok is TikTok cop oh that is awesome that's clever that is very clever I do like that I I you know look I there's so much more we could talk about in terms of this and my brain has just gone ping 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 with all these (laughs) other ideas and things that we can certainly explore further down the track I definitely know that we're going to work together more because I I ju- I'm so passionate about creating a better world and we have the opportunity in early childhood education and I have a bit of an ulterior motive <laughs> in doing what I do in that I know the more children that we can impact in the early years and have positive impact and put positive, you know, boundaries for these children. And that includes, you know, in your own space as an educator, having boundaries and telling children no is absolutely acceptable because they need to learn how they can approve, you know, have that within themselves too. But when we have, and filling them up with goodness, truth, beauty and goodness and and big-hearted care, when we can set that as a framework for children, it literally changes the world. So by the time these little people get to being big people that are running the world and the country, I'm in retirement and these children that I've had a positive impact on are going to hopefully have a positive impact on my world at the end of my life. So I think it's really important that we take that privilege and it is an absolute privilege to work with children and listen to them and, uh, you know, act accordingly. So you've got such an important message, Christy, and thank you so much for coming on and sharing with us. I I really appreciate it. Yeah. So you won't be the last we hear from you. (laughs) Well, I'm, I'm keen to keep talking about it. My whole mission and I, I mentioned this before the show, my whole mission since leaving the police is to share what I know for the purpose of keeping kids safe. That's all I care about. And the one thing that kept me writing, kept me doing what I was doing, even when I was so scared to share 
my stories and share my book because it's like birthing a baby. I tell you, it's one of the most scariest things you can do is sharing your thoughts and feelings and out in the world in a public setting is it's not about me. And that's all I kept saying to myself is it's not about me. It's about kids and keeping kids safe. And that's all I care about. And that's my mission. Yeah, amazing. And I am here for it. And I will shout it to the rooftops and get it out there as much as I can because I, you know, it's so important. And I don't think children need to experience that. So, yeah, it's such a great message. Thank you so much, Christy. And if you want to follow her, all her links in our show notes. And we will be having a lot more to do with Christy in the very near future. So, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Hi friend, thank you so much for joining us today. I hope you got a lot out of today's episode. When we work on our own, we can sometimes be in a silo. So having new perspectives and different ways of looking at things is vitally important for the growth of our individual selves and our professional selves as well. We love feedback. So if you felt compelled to share what you thought of today's podcast, we would love to read your thoughts. You can leave us a review on Apple Podcast. That helps our podcast to get out to the wider community. And the more that hear what we have to share, we think the better it is. Thanks so much, friend. We'll see you next time. Till then, big love.